be in a curious situation here until the 23rd when the term formally starts for the rest of the university. But I'm glad you could come tonight to hear Stephen Corey. Many of you here heard Father William Monahan speak on the rare book operations at the University of San Francisco in October. Stephen Corey works with Father Monahan uh, and is responsible for the day-to-day -day running of his collections about which he's going to talk to us tonight. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here, but I um, feel almost apologetic for being here telling you about someone in San Francisco, particularly a rare book room, because I'm all too familiar with Terry's opinion of things San Franciscans. In the August-September 1975 bin, Terry describes San Francisco as having toy trains which go by toy trees in Union Square. Down the toy hills near the toy sky skyscraper is the toy hotel with its toy elevators and its toy revolving bar at the top serving toy drinks. Well, having read that uh, after the fact back in San Francisco, we often suspected that you thought there were toy rare book rooms and toy rare book librarians, too. But be that as it may, um, I will plunge ahead and make a few remarks, if I may, about the special collections at the University of San Francisco. pleased to be here with you today, and I'm grateful to Terry for giving me this opportunity to tell you something about the Special Collections Department at the Richard A. Gleason Library at the University of San Francisco. Terry would like me to tell you about specific problems and special situations, but I feel, uh, which I face being a one-man operation, and I will talk about these. But first, allow me to give you some general background information. It may be surprising to learn that there are only three librarians with the specific title, Special Collections Librarian, in, the, in the San Francisco. And in fact, until 1982, there were only two such titles. That, those would be Johanna Goldschmidt at the San Francisco Public Library, and just in 1982 was created that title at San Francisco State University, uh, which had Helene Whitson as its first Special Collections Librarian. Of course, there are other special collections in the Bay Area such as the Library of the California Historical Society, the Society of California Pioneers, and others, but I want to make it clear that UC Berkeley is across the bay, as is Mills College, and that Stanford is a good hour away from San Francisco. They can be included in the Bay Area, but they have nothing to do with San Francisco. So it's very true that there are just two or three special collections librarians in all of San Francisco. The University of San Francisco is a private Roman Catholic school which was begun by the Jesuits in 1855, making it the oldest university in San Francisco. It was for many years a very small school indeed, for men only. The library was not particularly distinguished when in 1906 it underwent a massive involuntary weeding process. In fact, only a handful of books survived the fire. And the campus then on Van Ness Avenue was completely destroyed. The campus relocated near Golden Gate Park, sort of in the center of the peninsula, um, where it stayed and grew. The campus went co-ed in the mid-60s, and like most other campuses, went through a dizzying period of building and expansion in the 1960s. There are now about 6,500 students. In 1978, the university acquired a second campus one block away, Lone Mountain College, which was originally known as the San Francisco College for Women genteel female counterpart of the genteel male counterpart, which is always known as USF. Ours is an undergraduate school with no 
uh, graduate programs other than in nursing, business, and law. The library, completed in 1950, was designed to meet the needs of the campus for 30 years and has done very well. But we are now be, uh, beginning to feel the pinch. Originally, there was so much space that the library was used for classrooms and office space as well. And in fact, the last of the non-library space was used to build the Donahue Rare Book Room. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The beginning of the idea of special collections at the Gleason Library goes back to 1951. My friend, Norman H. Strauss, a name you will hear several times today, is fond of repeating Carlyle's statement to the effect that most institutions are but the length and shadow of one man. This was never more true than in the case of the growth of our special collections. The person I'm speaking of is someone several of you may have heard here recently, Father William J. Monahan, affectionately known as Father Bill. As a very young Jesuit, indeed, he became the university librarian in 1947, and in fact, he designed the present library building. He has continued to serve the library and its interests ever since. But in 1951, with a major purchase, Father Monaghan began the special collections, which have grown now for over 30 years under his guidance in one form or another. This was the Sir Thomas More collection formed by Maurice Harrison, a San Francisco lawyer. As a collection offered by the late David McGee, it was a great opportunity. Uh, among other things, uh, the 44 editions of Utopia printed before 1750 is recorded in Gibson. He had 38 of the 44. That's collecting the Utopia in depth. So Father Monaghan, oh, I'm sorry, as a collection, it was a great opportunity, but at that time, there was no special funds for such a collection. So Father Monaghan went to his parents, logical choice, and asked them if they would be interested in buying the collection for the university. The rest, as they say, is history. Father Monaghan was solely responsible for the development of special collections for 20 years. Early on, he applied the effective tactic of using the Sir Thomas More collection as a toe in the door. We have established a commitment to special collections by acquiring this major collection. Can you help us in other areas? And he started that right from the beginning. It's had enormous effects over the years. He thus established a, a devoted group of generous donors and stopped picking on his parents. In the 1950s, Father Monaghan met Mr. Frank G. Drum, a wealthy businessman with a love for books, and interested him in the Gleason Library and our special collections. When Mr. Drum died in 1960, he left a substantial sum to be used as an endowment, the income of which was to be used solely for special library acquisitions which would not otherwise have been made. The annual income from this fund is now some $40,000 a year, and is my main source of funds currently. The stability of a steady income interested other collectors encouraged and encouraged further gifts with the knowledge that, they, that the collections would not remain dormant but would, would grow steady income. Such a collection was that of Oscar Wilde first editions from Mr. Edgar Kirla. Mr. Edwin Greaves gave a collection of 17th to 18th century French illustrated books, including Audrey's La Fontaine's Fables, the pinnacle of 18th century book illustration. A third interesting collection which came to us early on was, a, was an historical collection concerning the wealthy Marylander Charles Carroll of Carrollton, formed by Charles D. Terry of Kiwani, Illinois, as he always styled himself. Mr. Terry was a Catholic convert, and as you may know, Charles Carroll of Carrollton was the only Roman Catholic signer of the Declaration of Independence. Mr. Terry was fascinated with this fact and assembled a remarkable collection, cur currently certainly the finest west of the Mississippi of this remarkable figure. 
because of Father Monahan's successful attention, Mr. Terry also gave us our Gutenberg Bible Leaf and a copy of the rarest American Bible, the 1790 Douay version, published by Gary and Stewart in Philadelphia, 1790. Thus, over the years, the other collections were added to the Sir Thomas More collection through gifts and by purchase with income from the Frank G. Drum Fund. These materials, known as special collections, were put in larger and larger locked rooms in the library. As they grew, it became inevitable that they needed the attention of a special collections librarian. In 1969, the then university librarian, Dr. Robert G. Gittler, created such a position. With the help of the new special collections librarian, Florian Chasky, and with Father Monahan's help, Father Monahan had been given the title of Director of Library Relations in 1965. Dr. Gittler, faced with utilizing the last available space in the library, worked with them to design a rare book room, even though there was no available money to create such a room. But the resulting plans, once done, excited interest in Mr. and Mrs. Jeremy C. Cole, stepped forward to suggest that a rich relation might be able to provide the projected cost So it was that the Dan Murphy Foundation of Los Angeles provided the funds and the Countess, the papal title, Countess Bernardine Murphy Donahoe Rare Book Room was opened on October 11, 1972. The first special collections librarian, Florian Chasky, left to go to Stanford as chief of special collections early in 1974. I was selected as his successor and became the second and current special collections librarian on September 1, 1974, a good eight years ago now. In that time, the collection has doubled to some 15,000 volumes, and I will go over some of the major sections of, this, of these collections briefly. Our holdings are unabashedly eclectic at this stage in our development. In general, we have collections of 19th and 20th century English and American literature, 19th century San Francisco literature and publishing and fine printing, and most of our collections of literature are author-specific. We really don't collect in literary areas broadly enough to describe them as areas author-specific. I hope that I can mention them all without, I hope, boring you unduly. Given that our collections are quite eclectic, a good, as good an approach as any is a chronological one. I would have to mention first a recent literature collection, which goes hand in hand with the Sir Thomas More collection and was started at the same time. Uh, recent literature, of course, is Catholic protest literature of the 1560s to the 1640s. And there's a bibliography, Allison Rogers, of works in English. It's that bibliography that we are primarily turning our attention and trying to get as many Allison and Rogers a and titles as possible. And we now have several hundred represent literature uh, volumes to go with the Sir Thomas More collection. After all, he was beheaded in 1535, and this movement really is a result of that and other actions of the period, as you all know. Now, Maurice Harrison had a wonderful collection more, but he lacked the key book, and that was the 1516 first edition of Utopia. Yet he had done 30 others, but not that. And in 1961, a very generous donor bought it uh, for us through a dealer at Sotheby's for a magnificent sum of 800 pounds. I suppose you know the Chatsworth copies, which brought 75,000. So uh, we, we do have one week in fact, but we're still happy to have our copies. Uh, in 1962, we were given a major collection of Robert Graves, and that is now one of the great collections at the University of San Francisco. It's a major collection, one of the two or three best in the United States. We have hundreds of letters, 
manuscripts, authors corrected proofs, uh, and we collect uh, graves in all editions. In 1964, we bought the Clark pamphlet file of World War I pamphlets. It has some 7,000 pamphlets relating to World War I in it, and we have tried to add to that, but uh, we don't find major sections of World War I pamphlets popping up, so we add to it slowly, but it's a very interesting resource. In 1967, the George Pulteney Theater Collection, which contains 273 typescripts from 1868 through 1915 of American theater productions, some of which are unique to our collection. In 1970, we obtained Kenneth Ball's co collection of uh, Christmas books, and we have uh, cunningly redirected that collection since we received it. He collected everything dealing with Christmas. Now we collect Christmas uh, via fine printing. Many publishers, many fine printers have done all sorts of booklets, chapbooks, broadsides, and that sort of thing for Christmas. So it's a collection that uh, grows and gets more handsome yearly. In 1972, we were able to, with some extra funds, purchase a major collection of Eric Gill, Albert Sparrison's collector, uh, local Franciscan collector, had formed this magnificent collection of Eric Gill. It was the finest in private hands in the world at the time we bought it in 1972 added some wonderful things since. I don't know if you remember a, uh, two Novembers ago, there was a magnificent sale at Sotheby's. We bought $7,000 worth of additional Eric Gill items from that sale. Another copy, another book that we got to add to the Eric Gill collection, to me, the spiritual cornerstone of the Eric Gill collection. That's Eric Gill's own copy of his most famous book, which is the Four Gospels. It's not the cleanest copy in the world, but the association uh, makes more than makes up for it. 1978, I'm skipping, there's some significant gaps here, you'll see why in a minute. In 1978, we obtained the Madeline Gleason Poetry Collection. Madeline Gleason was a local poet who was a great friend of Robert Duncan and James Broughton, uh, William Everson, and other uh, major and minor poets of the San Francisco Bay Area. And not only did we get her manuscripts, we got her collection of their works, uh, many of them of which, uh, of which are inscribed to her and are unique copies. In 1980, we got one of the largest collections ever given to the library, a collection of Robinson Jeffers, famous California poet, which had virtually everything in it, including 150 letters from Una Jeffers to the lady who formed it, Mrs. Barkan. It's known as the Phoebe and Hans Barkan Collection of Robinson Jeffers, and was given to us by their daughter uh, at the time they died. We have some smaller holdings in Bloomsbury, Chess, Henry James, George Sterling, and any number of major and minor topics, very little in science. Uh, and one of the most exciting things we've had recently uh, is the only other known copy in the United States of the Exocitia Spiritualis, the first edition of St. Ignatius of Loyola's Spiritual Exercises, Rome, Lotto, 1548. The only, other, the only other known copy is at the Library of Congress. So that's a major uh, thing to have gotten, and we bought it in honor of Father Monaghan's 50th anniversary as a Jesuit. Um, that does remind me to say that we do not, we are very careful not to collect Catholic collections. We don't have uh, Belloc, we don't have Chesterton, we don't deliberately go after Catholic authors. In fact, if we do anything, we try and avoid them. Uh, Father Monaghan is very eclectic in his taste, uh, very secular in his taste, and the university leaves us strictly alone, so we, just, we, don't, we don't look over our shoulders to see what we're buying. So the library is a, quite a secular one, really. The library is run. There aren't any Jesuits in the library other than 
Father Monaghan just his hand. So it's not a Catholic collection with a capital C in any manner of speaking. We have developed in the past eight years two major collecting areas. One of them is the 1890s and the other one is fine printing. And I, there's a large gap in the, in the collections I mentioned simply because they all fit together, either in the 1890s or in fine printing, which is why we got them in the first place and which is why I'm going to group them in two sections. Now, neither Father Monaghan nor Mr. Kirleff could have had any idea in 1967 that uh, Mr. Kirleff's Oscar Wilde collection, the first edition, would eventually lead us to collecting the English 1890s as a, as a literary period. But we purchased a small collection of the Hausens in 1970, a few years later, and Mr. Str Norman H. Strauss gave us a fine collection of Richard Legally in the 1972, to which we've been able to add a great deal of manuscript material. In 1975, we bought a virtually complete Max Beerbohm collection. At this juncture, Mrs. Helen Weber Kennedy, interested in these various aspects of the 1890s, having seen them many times, loving to come and look at them, suggested that we, th th that we think of developing the 1890s as a general field. We temporized a bit, and when we temporized, we said, well, to that end, I will give you $2,000 a year. That will help you make up your mind. We accepted her advice and her money, and have been collecting in the 90s ever since. We have subs subsequently bought a collection of author Sim Arthur Simmons, and we're given a fine collection of George Moore by Mrs. Theodore M. Lilienthal. What we want to do is build a collection of the complete texts of the major figures of the 1890s and build up relatively minor manuscript holdings, say, for only two or three of the figures involved. The most clearly defined of these manuscript collections uh, would be the Richard Legallian material, as we have undoubtedly the largest collection of his letters and manuscripts in this country. Naturally, authors have led to publishers in the 90s, and we are attempting to build a complete collection of the classic period of the Bodley Head imprint, when Elkin Matthews and John Lane were in partnership from 1889 to 1894. Fascinating period in the, the, the Bodley Head imprint history. Their first book was Richard Legallian's Volumes and Folio. We now have some 68 of the 100 titles listed by James D. Nelson's The Early 90s, A View from the Bodley Head, as well as a couple he missed out of his bibliography. We are also interested in the American publishers, Stone and Kimball, Wayne Williams, Copeland and Day, these and other imprints, and the striking, strikingly decorated cloth bindings of the period as well, designed by such men as Aubrey Beardsley, Charles Ricketts, and Lawrence Hausman. That the 90s is an interesting period in the history of the book leads me to our other recently developed major collecting area, which is perhaps even larger, that of fine printing in the history of the book. As with the 90s, we were led to fine printing because of several generous donations. Mr. Theodore M. Lilienthal left us his very extensive collection of the Grabhorn Press in 1973 as a bequest, which was followed by Mr. Albert Sparrison's gift of Jane Grabhorn's Colt and Jumbo Press imprint. So that completed the Grabhorn Press uh, almost uh, entirely. Mr. Norman Strauss gave us a complete collection of the Book Club of California in 1973 fine collection of Henry Evans Peregrine Press, and in 1975, a complete collection of the Allen Press, perhaps one of the two or three finest presses working in America today. Over the years, Mr. Strauss has given us, as well, important gifts of Victor Hammer's several presses, John Foss's Hammer Creek Press, an important group of Bruce Rogers material, the Overbrook Press, and examples of many other smaller examples of 
many other fine presidents. Due to these continued gifts, Mr. Strauss almost single-handedly led us to the extensive commitment we subsequently made to fine printing. He believes that we are the logical location in the Bay Area for typographical collections, citing San, Francisco San Francisco's long tradition of fine printing, which is certainly undeniable. Furthermore, although every library in the Bay Area had collections of fine printing and does have fine printing to one degree or another, we determined that no one was seriously keeping up with the current fine printing scene. So with the books that Mr. Strauss gave us as sort of retrospective fine printing, we decided to add to that by keeping up with everything currently being done in San Francisco, which would seem like an excessively logical thing to do when I, except I will repeat, no one else is doing it. And so given that, we've rather uh, startledly awake because we realized there are lots of years uh, which no, for which no serious effort at collecting has been made. And if any collecting is to be done, it should be done in the San Francisco Bay Area. Of course, the New York Public Library has a, a magnificent collection of fine printing, and they, they have at least examples of most of the uh, fine presses that we're trying to develop. And Mr. Chauncey D. Leake, who's with us, is one of the, I think, really distinguished fine press collectors in New York. printing in San Francisco is such an enormous topic that we would not ourselves have ever undertaken it because our, our financial resources are relatively limited and if you're not careful you'd make you have to turn over all of your budget to buy things like a thousand dollar Moby Dick that Andrew Hoyne was doing he's just doing a fifteen hundred dollar book of revelations quite a bit of the price was more revelations than anything, anything else and then of course we have dear Barry Moser who's doing a woodcut every 10 minutes and illustrating magnificent books from 1,000, 1,500, 1,800. I shudder to think what's to come next. And these people are not alone. You've seen the Chalonidae Press. Uh, Alan Robinson is a wonderful wood engraver. But again, he's an artist trying to make a living, and he's making it through very limited editions of books. But if you're going to seriously collect fine printing, you really, you have to make some decisions somewhere. And so we, we want to collect nationally, but we simply can't. We have to kind of concentrate on the San Francisco Bay Area, which God knows is, is heady enough territory to take care of. And we probably, as I say, wouldn't have gone into the dollar if Mr. Strauss had not continued to give us and give us and give us uh, major typographical collections. Uh, we were making a significant enough commitment uh, financially through this strong fund that we figured, you know, if he's going to continue giving that way, all we can do is continue to add significant collections of fine press material. We now try to collect everything we can of current Bay Area fine printing. We have standing orders for Peter Koch's Blackstone Press, the Matrix Press of Kathy Walkup, the Interval Press of Cheryl Miller, Lee McClellan's Meadow Press, just to name a few very new faces on the scene, and several um, other presses as well, as, for, as well as for the more obvious presses, such as the Orion Press, the Allen Press, Arif, which is Wesley Tanner, Greenwood Press of Jack Stoffaker, and the Adrian Wilson Press in Tuscany Alley. But even a complete collection of a given press does not have a great deal of research value. Research value depends on unique material. So 
when opportunities have presented themselves, we have purchased the complete archives of two private presses in the Bay Area, or two fine printers in the Bay Area. Clifford Burke's Cranium Press, which operated from 1966 to 1976, and Roger Levinson's Tamil Pius Press, which worked in the early 50s through 1978. This concentration of fine printing, coupled with the generous gifts have received, we have received, have made us the major repository for fine printing in the Bay Area. And since we have gone this far, we intend to keep that title. Uh, in 1980, due to our commitments, I think, Norman Strauss gave us perhaps the largest collection that he can give us is the virtually complete collection of John Henry Nash, which marked uh, the, the pinnacle of uh, the, the, perfect, the perfect gift for the San Francisco Bay Area, since John Henry Nash was the major printer, printer from 1895 until 1947. There were several thousand pieces involved, some of it ephemera, several hundred books, several thousand pieces of ephemera. It's as complete a collection as has ever been formed, and there was no interesting collection of Nash in San Francisco city where he did all his work. So when Norman Strauss gave that to us, it was uh, at once his largest collection, other than the, the uh, Thomas Bird Mosier collection that he formed, and the most important that, that he could possibly give to the Gleason Library. And I have to consider that the, the most significant gift we'll probably ever get from him. He has many, many other collections, and I'm sure we have, we're going to get other fine presses from him. But the John Henry Nash is above all others. As I mentioned, each case, uh, in the cases of the 90s and fine printing, um, these two collections reflect our careful attention to avoid collecting in fields already being developed locally. This is why we do not collect a rather obvious field, that of Californiana. The Bancroft Library and the California Historical Society have already done more than we can ever hope to do in this field. I, I suppose that seems obvious, but people ask us why we don't have more Californiana, and that's precisely the reason why. That's precisely the reason why we're collecting 90s because it's not being done anywhere locally. In fact, the only other, uh, the other two important collections of 90s material uh, are to be found, one in Los Angeles at the Clark Library, which has a, a major Oscar Wilde collection, and then figures around him. Uh, it's not 90s in general, really. And then embedded in the general 19th century collection of the Colbeck, that Mr. Colbeck donated to the University of British Columbia, uh, is a good collection of the 90s, but that's embedded larger collection of 19th century English literature in general, but he does have a fine 90s collection. So those places are not close to us. There's no other uh, library in the Bay Area working on the 90s, and it's a small enough area and accessible enough and financially viable enough that we can, we, we seriously believe we can put together a major collection. Um, it, it, you know, I, I, think that, I don't think that's unrealistic. And fine printing, as you see, we came to via the back door having made that commitment and having bought several archives and having several virtually complete collections, I think we'll be able to make a, a major uh, collection of fine printing. Well, I want to take a little time, although I've discussed most of our collections anyhow, and go over what I do. And uh, several of my friends in San Francisco said, I, gee, I hope this is being taped because we'd love to know just what it is you do. Uh, they, they come to the library at 1.30 and see, still see my out to lunch sign, and they say, and they sometimes don't catch me in at 9 o'clock in the morning, and they, they really do wonder what all this is about. By and large, I do pretty much everything that there is to do, because, uh, I think it must be clear, the, 
special collections uh, librarian at the Gleason Library is a one-man operation. Now, that's not completely true because, of course, I have cataloging help and acquisitions help, technical services help. Um, and in fact, I have a wonderful rare book cataloger who came to the Gleason Library the same day I did and has been the rare book cataloger ever since. I don't even need to tell him anything. I don't need to make any notes. He always looks for presses. He always looks for provenance. He always looks for bindings. He knows what we're collecting and, and has a very good eye for, for points to be picked up and cataloging. And the acquisitions department is very effective in getting my orders, once I've gotten them written, getting my orders out, taking care of getting books in and out. But outside of that, I do pretty much everything. Well, what is everything? We have a large exhibit area. I have 15 exhibit cases. Uh, they're about two by three each. Uh, they're all locked cases that lift in front. I have a little stick, and I can then lift the lid up and get in and work on the flat surface and then lower the case back down. It's a wonderful system of exhibit cases. And they go all along our north walls, about 70 feet of them. And believe it or not, it's not difficult at all to fill 15 exhibit cases. It's very easy. In fact, I'm usually deciding what not to put in as opposed to what, what to put in. But we have an exhibit every six weeks to three months. And when they come six weeks at a time, it gets to be a bit much. I'm happier when it's every three months. But uh, we have uh, we use the, the exhibit area um, for public relations. Uh, the whole rare book room is a public relations area, if you want to think of it that way. Uh, if a donor is thinking of giving us a collection, they'll think nothing of changing our exhibit schedule and having an exhibit of these wonderful books, and won't you come and see them? And then, of course, when the exhibit is over, you say, well, surely you don't want to go to the trouble of packing them up and bringing them home. And you'd be surprised how often that tactic has worked. So the exhibit schedule can be very flexible depending on need, current need. But I do all the putting in of books, all the selecting of books, all the taking out of books. There's insurance to be taken care of, and there's correspondence to be taken care of. That is all done by me. I help users, and other than teaching, I want to talk about the, the various people that would come into the rare book room. Some would be students. Some want some of the students who simply want to look around without having been in the rare book room. And they get a good number of people like that because the library is relatively small. We're only four floors. I'm on the periodicals floor, very popular floor in the library. And it's right by the elevator door. So uh, a lot of people come in just to look and find out what's going on. Other students have class assignments, papers they must do. And to that uh, point, I let anybody who wants to come in the rare book room. I have no exclusion policy whatsoever. In fact, I don't even have any kind of exclusive using policy because I discriminate equally against everybody. No one can use a pencil, of course. No one can do any copying without my looking at the material. Uh, and they're on a rather rigorous one-to-one -one basis. I watch what they do. I'm not one person having to watch six people. And in that circumstance, I'm very much luckier than any large library I've ever seen. No large library in the world can afford to have somebody from the library watching every user. It just can't be done, even in special collections departments. Uh, at least uh, at the Bancroft, I know particularly, they're, they're very understaffed and very overused. Not the reason overused, but it's very heavily used and certainly understaffed. At USF, it's one-to-one, -one, so I can watch them very carefully and I let anybody come in. So it's a very comfortable uh, situation when people uh, come in wanting all sorts of services. 
I get the books myself and I put them back on the shelf. No one is allowed in the back area. So there's a great deal of physical control of the books or manuscripts as the case may be. There's a lot of correspondence, of course. There's dozens of queries from, from scholars and people doing bibliographies and doing histories and doing any number of things, all of which have to be written. There are monthly reports to be written. There are annual reports to be written. I write for this record, but that's another matter. Sometimes I feel like a glorified secretary. I'm sure any number of you have that feeling themselves. But I have a typewriter, and I don't have a secretary. I do all my own writing and all my own typing. Um, there are lots of external activities booksellers to visit, uh, collectors to visit, and uh, a wide range of book-related activities which go on in the San Francisco Bay Area, I suppose, is as active as New York is as far as book activity. So one of the serious problems I have is trying to balance my time in the rare book room as opposed to the time I spend outside of the rare book room. And many legitimate things can be said for spending time outside the rare book room. But the unfortunate fact is that when I'm not there, the room isn't really effectively be used because no one else knows the collection. Mr. Burkle, the universal librarian and the special collections cataloger can let people in if they want to see an exhibit or if they happen to want just a catalog book they can take to the shelves and, and find those things. But we have uh, a number of uncatalogued collections. Nearly all the press books are uncatalogued. You have to know where those are. The manuscripts are all together but it's a very annoying hunt through them to find what they're looking for. They don't know the manuscripts as well as I do. And often, when I'm not there using them, they have not gotten full service. Now, the ideal solution, of course, would be to have the library administration give me a part-time person. But the library budget well, simply can't stand that kind of additional personnel. So uh, as much as, as, as important as going out is into the community, I have to spend a good deal of time in the rare book room. And in fact, my, my sympathies lie with the rare book room. I, when I got there, I started the evening hours in 1976, but there were no evening hours and no weekend hours in the rare book room. I thought, how were working types ever going to see it? So I decided that on Thursday evenings, I'm open from 6.30 to 9.30. I come in later on Thursdays, but at least there's one evening a week that the rare book room can be open, and I think that's extremely important if you have users seriously in mind. A um, couple of more things I do in the rare book room, which might slightly surprising. There are any number of receptions in the rare book room. As I said, we have a large PR uh, component to, to at least the Gleason Library. I won't, I won't speak for all the rare book rooms, but I think uh, a place like Houghton is definitely a place one would be brought if one would wanted to be impressed with the campus. Uh, the Gleason Library is at a much smaller scale, but the same thing. It's sort of the treasure house of the university. And the university president, we call him Father President, brings people by on a very regular basis for tours. Uh, the, uh, the top flight donors, uh, alumni, come to the Rare Book Room. And they are hardly ever announced. They just drop in, and I have to drop everything and give them a thorough or less thorough tour of the Rare Book Room and our collections. Uh, that at on demand. That's something I simply must do. But there are more formal receptions, and for instance, in October, we had three of them. We had a, a, an exhibit honoring our honoring the current exhibit. Um, it's a case in, uh, when I'm 
very pleased of and one that's indicative of our role in the San Francisco Bay Area. Our exhibit honored a book that was being published by the University of California. So the exhibit and reception is not at the University of California, it's at the University of San Francisco because I'm a very good friend of the production manager of the press. It was a very attractive book, a very special book. It was uh, the new uh, translation of The Divine Comedy by Alan Mandelbaum with illustrations by Barry Moser. And he sent us all the original drawings that he did to illustrate the book. And we had dummies and files and that sort of thing in a uh, technical exhibit of, of the book as it was being made, uh, including the art. But the reception and the exhibit were at the Square Book Room. So that was sponsored by the University of California Press. It was sponsored by the Gleason Library. It was sponsored by the Da Vinci Society of San Francisco, by the Schlesinger Foundation, and by the Italian Cultural Institute. So we had all those community groups gather in one place at one time in the rare book room, and we had this rather wonderful uh, reception, if I don't mind saying so myself. But it took a lot of work, as you can imagine. Uh, we had an exhibit honoring uh, a new book published by Hill. And uh, the ladies who wrote the book are good friends of the Gleason Library. It was a very important book on California history, the first important history to have been done on California winemaking. So it was not just a winey subject, it was, it was California history. The publication project for that book was in the rare book room. <coughs> and it was something I, I uh, had to organize. The third thing, and uh, probably the most special exhibit to us, was an anniversary reception in the Rare Book Room uh, in, uh, on October 10th. We honored the 25th anniversary of the Gleason Library Associates and the 10th anniversary of the Rare Book Room. Of course, I've been there eight or nine years. So it was a very special reception. But all three of those took place in October. I handled all the details for all three receptions. I feel like a social secretary as well as a regular secretary sometimes. I take care of all external publicity concerning the Rare Book Room. Um, external to me even means on campus trying to get articles in the school paper on so uh, ridiculous a topic as your rare book room when they could be discussing the discos and bars at great length uh, is a major undertaking. I don't know how many of you know that, but I can assure you with USF, it's very difficult to get real news in the, in the school newspaper. But I have succeeded several times and I brought uh, some examples of articles that have appeared in the school paper about the rare book room. And happily, they usually include photographs. I think it's very important to lure students into the beautiful room, that full wood paneling, burnt orange carpet, and it, it looks quiet and elegant, and it's even the look of it uh, does lure students in. And I'm, I'm glad that once they're in, I can trap them in other ways, I like to think. Uh, let's see, what else do I have here? Yes, there's another um, thing. I'm Feels, he, he feels entirely free at any time, week in and week out, to say, Corey, take care of X. He's coming in Tuesday. And, of course, then one feels bound to drop everything and rush to the airport and or organize receptions in the rare book room and or organize talks, lectures, visitations, accommodations, whatever. I will say, however, that most of them are fascinating enough that it's a pleasure of the Gleason Library uh, operation, I have
have enough freedom that I can go to the airport and pick up somebody if need be and can squire them around. And Terry has quickly learned that I can take care of people. And he's made good use of that resource, I think, over, over the years, which I'm very pleased about. Um, let's see, what else do I have here? There's some externals. favorite external, looting libraries. It's great fun for those of you who have never done it, and those of you who have, I'm sure, will sympathize with me. My favorite looting operation takes place about three or four, either three or four times a year, about quarterly. This is Theodore M. Williams, all we'll call Albert Ferrison up. Say, Albert, we haven't seen you recently. We invited you and Steve come for lunch. Well, we never go for lunch. We go to loot the library, but that's the euphemism that's used. We go to lunch. Man Hutton served us lunch on the patio and some lovely wine and a wonderful quiche. Then we'll slowly wander into the library and say, well, gee, what, what is there today? And Albert and I will wend our way to the shelves and pick up a few Dove Press items and a little Californiana and some early Beers items. I think the most outrageous example that I can think of I've ever gotten away with, she had a copy of the Dove Bible. Believe it or not, we're one library in the world that didn't have a copy. So I coveted that five, lovely five-volume set for a good long time. And one day after lunch, I spoke to her and said, Hey, I'm feeling a bit Bible-ish today. She said, Fine. That's how I took, that's how I took the, the Dove Bible, feeling a bit Bible-ish. And so that's a very pleasant work indeed. Uh, another happy occasion, uh, this unfortunately unique. Father Monaghan and I went Beach, which is a lovely area in the Monterey Peninsula. I'm sure most of you have heard of it. Uh, the man who had died was the son of the blind, democratic, uh, corrupt boss in San Francisco from about 1870 to 1890. And this was his son, who had reaped all the wonderful worldly rewards of being a corrupt, democratic boss in San Francisco, which must have been considerable. The, uh, the, the wages of that, those sins were the largest piece of property on the shore in Pebble Beach with a small cottage atop. And he had just died in, uh, some, some time after the age of 90, and his much younger wife, who knew nothing of books, said, why don't you come in and take some of Chris's books? We'd love to give them to the library. Well, I had no idea what that might mean, but we came away with the first collected works of Addison, the first collected works of Horace Walpole, wonderful John Henry Nash item we lacked because we cataloged with Charles W. Clark, who was the brother of William Andrews Clark. They were both book collectors. And before John Henry Nash started printing the William Andrews Clark set, which most of you know is about that long, 20 green volumes, uh, he printed a seven-volume catalog for Charles W., the older brother. The second volume of this seven-volume set is the first book he printed on his own. First book to bear the John Henry Nash imprint very important. The entire set was issued in 35 copies. I didn't ever expect to see, much less ever get one. When I walked into the library, and it was wall-to-wall shelving, and I turned slightly to the right, and there, the first thing on the shelf was a seven-volume John Henry Nash book. So that set the tone for the entire day. We staggered back to the car, laden with boxes and boxes of books, and it was one of the most happiest, one of the happiest external programs, my looting programs I've ever enjoyed, but that certainly is uh, a, a very happy aspect of my job, and I do that 
fairly regular basis a number of people. And people call us up and ask if we want things. We usually go over and view the book in situ before we get carried away, sending over vans and that sort of thing, looking at books. Now, Terry won't be happy unless I mention a few problems. I've lined up a few pr problems to mention to you. I, the first one I had already mentioned to you, which is the dividing of your time between the internal work of the rare book room and the external things that one has to do. Uh, those are a bit complex for me because I'm also uh, on the board of the Book Club of California. They have lunch and meetings. Uh, I'm the quarterly uh, newsletter for the book club, and that takes some time. I'm uh, vice president at the moment of the book club, and that takes a little more time. Uh, I write the occasional article, as Terry can tell you. Uh, there are other kinds of committee meetings to go to. Uh, there are all sorts of book groups in San Francisco, and uh, if one half tries, one can get on whatever is running them, and that, of course, takes more time in addition. So uh, I have come to a fairly good understanding with my boss about when I'm gone, no one else is in the library to man the book room. A problem that uh, I think is probably unique or certainly doesn't happen very often to a library, we're in the process of integrating another library into our library. Uh, obviously, when we bought Lone Mountain College, uh, well, not obviously, but when we bought Lone Mountain College, we bought it lock, stock, and barrel, and that included the library and they had something in the way of special collections. Warren Howell uh, generously came before the school closed due to financial difficulties and helped them out by giving them $100,000. Uh, they allowed him to take away a few things. Um, so when I got to the uh, special collections, once they finally did go broke, uh, it was a very sad, there was nothing sadder in the world. This is a Californian. California point of view, but you find a lovely little Solander case that says Junipero Serra letter on it, and find it empty, hurts. And we knew of some of the Incunabula that were in the collection that were no longer. I escaped with a small one or two, but uh, what was taken, I'm glad I don't know. I really don't want to know, and it didn't, didn't, didn't do them any good in the long run anyway. But there are some special collections. Uh, some press books, some Californiana, some literature, and all of that is at the Lone Mountain Library, locked up, and now those books have to be taken both to the special collections, the special collections, the regular collection, to the, to the main library. And we're talking about, oh, approximately 100,000 volumes, which is not enormous, but our whole library <coughs> is only 400,000 volumes. And as I mentioned, my rare book room is 15,000. So we're not a terribly large, you know, it's, not, it's not going into a much larger library. Fortunately, the university itself has utilized the space that they want in the, in the library and are not pressuring us to move those books. So it's going to take a number of years to, to finish integrating the collections at Lone Mountain with the collections at the university. Art is a problem. I don't like art collect art. We don't want art. We turn art away. Uh, artists come to us all the time. People want to give us paintings, texts. We try desperately not to collect art. We don't want it. We don't have the space for it. But art will out, won't it? 
we have art willy-nilly. Things have come to us bits and pieces, and it's a very difficult thing to know what to do with. Um, it's particularly difficult when we have a collection that we have about $200,000 worth of, uh, air, of uh, Durer prints, original Durer prints, and it does it seem ungrateful not to want them. Well, we can't turn something that away. It does have a certain tangential interest in the history of the book anyhow, doesn't it? But when you get into uh, Dolly drawings or, or, or sets of, of uh, limited edition to 3,000 copies each of, of uh, Sergraf suites of Dolly, then it becomes a good deal more dicey, and that's the sort of thing one is bound to encounter much more often and what to do. Well, it was quite a serious problem until we hit upon a very ingenious solution. We had the university librarian made the curator of art for the campus. So the university can't accept anything now without going through the curator of art. And that, I'm pleased to say, has very effectively stemmed the tide of unwanted. I have another, um, well, you probably all have similar situations, but there's always the thorny donor, isn't there? The, the alcoholic or the pest or the, the, uh, the person who has nothing else to do but come and visit you three times a day and or call you three times a day. I have a, an example of a, of a slightly different case of an overeager donor. This overeager donor happens to be out he's not He's not unhappy with the story at all. He's proud of it. We had a lovely little Albion, 19th century Albion, which was beautifully finished, uh, press ready, ready to go, had done printing, as a matter of fact. It was on its own, made a little um, stand in the rare book room. It looked beautiful there. Well, Albert Sparrison decided that he had heard from Muir Dawson, I don't think I ever forgive Muir. Muir told him that a press owned by Eric Gill was available. Now, of course, Albert Sparrison formed the Eric Gill collection that we bought. And so Albert was completely beside himself press available to belong to Eric Gill. So he said to Ren Dawson, without asking us, hold that press for us, we'll buy it. And uh, the order was sent to England to have the press sent before Albert ever got around to telling us that it was coming and that we would have to pay for it. Now that's what I call the case of the over-eager donor. Or he had been a donor. He's, he's a nice man and he's given us lots of things. He's helped me mount every exhibit that's ever been mounted in the rare book room. He's a wonderful friend of the library. He just gave me Sir Thomas More medal. But oh my. And I'm sure all of you have, will, if, if you haven't, will run across people like that. Anyhow, this is Albert's worst. This is his worst story. Worst story I have about Albert. And we felt there was nothing we could do. We didn't even want to get rid, rid of the old press. And of course, we, we almost got even with Albert because as the story finally emerged from England, it wasn't nearly as rosy as it sounded. The press wasn't owned by Eric Gill. It was actually owned by the firm of Hagen Gill. Then Albert put a cheery face on that. He said, well, it's almost the same thing, isn't it? And then a little more work uh, was done and a little more light was shed and we discovered that the press was actually purchased by the firm of Hagen Gill five years after Gill had died. So uh, Eric Gill never saw that press. I mean, it has about as much relation to Eric Gill as I do. But nothing would do but what we got for every press had been ordered. So the, the only thing we could do to, to prevent this from being a complete rout is that we kept our little album and we paid for the press, the new 
new press, the new big. It's a lovely press. It's much bigger. It's an 1857 Hopkinson Cope Albion, but it's much larger. It's super royal. And it was, of course, disassembled. We had to do that, too. Had to pay for the press. Had to pay for the shipping of the press. Had to pay for the drage of, of the press. Had to pay to have the press brought up to the rare book room. Had to have the press paid to have the press assembled. So we got all those costs together. And then we sold our original press for that much money. So at least we didn't come out financially. We didn't lose financially on the deal. And the little Albion was in such a lovely one that we got we got enough money to cover all the fiasco of the Hopkinson Cope Albion. And those cases are not unique in libraries. Let's see what other interesting story do I have here. Oh yes, working with Father Monahan can be great fun too. He won't mind if I tell tell a couple of tales at school. He um, loves being a librarian. He was the university librarian for many, many years, and it took a long time to train him so that he wouldn't go into a bookshop and say, we'll take these, and then we'd hear about it later. He's very good now about saying, would you hold these and quote these, but he does that very extensively. You can't go into a bookshop without saying, hold these, and we'll see what we can do about them. And of course, you know who does all the work on the quotes, don't you? But he loves finding books, and he has a wonderful, he has a very broad uh, uh, number of interests, uh, literary and historical and personal and biographical. Uh, there's, there's hardly a book ever written that wouldn't interest Father Monahan. So it's, it's fortunate that we have uh, relatively few collections, so we can say, Father, just check the book. And that works sometimes. But uh, he will buy some, he will find some wonderful things, and Mr. Burke and I are always hard put to it yay or nay, and he, in the long run, uh, helps collect, I would say, 20% of what is purchased by the rare book, by the sum fund, and what we get in such a collection. But since he started the whole thing anyhow, we find it very difficult to grudge him. Um, let's see, what else do we want to talk about? Kerry wants me to talk about integrating the collections with, uh, uh, in the rare book room with the teaching function in general at the university. She'd be very unhappy if I didn't and I am passionately interested in getting students in the rare book room and in teaching students. It's one of the things I like doing most. And ever since I got there, I've offered a very modest course indeed, but offered it nonetheless in the art and history of the book. And I'm willing to teach any amount of time or any aspect of that subject that I can to anybody who wants me to. Uh, I don't have a second master, so I can't teach a full course for credit, but I offer instruction in the history of the book any faculty member or any group of students who want it. And uh, that's been very successful. When I first got there, I went to the English and the history departments at, at uh, their meetings and met with them two or three times at departmental meetings and explained what we had in the rare book room and that here I was and I was uh, not only not only would I, but I was anxious to teach. And if any of them had any use for me whatsoever, please let me know. And that's been very successful. I teach 10 to 15 periods of instruction a year, and those run the gamut from uh, Renaissance history. Mr. Gleason will bring the Renaissance history course in and, and look at uh, the scholar printers, such as which he will say, well, tell us about the history of printing, the, the beginning of the book, the beginning of printing, and something about the scholar printers. Fine. We have examples 
do that, and I'm always pleased to do it. Uh, there are uh, a number of uh, English courses, particularly in uh, that particular period, if you want to know how the book, how the advent of the book affected manuscripts, texts, that sort of thing. They, the English classes will come to prayer books and look at period books. We have about 40 stenographer, uh, very little in the way of manuscript material, but we do have certainly period examples to look at. And that's basically all they want. We're talking here about undergraduate programs only. And I have, I have an art course. Uh, Mr. DJ brings his uh, art appreciation class. He says, show us what you have in art. For as much as I don't like art, I have to scurry around and find the various things we have. And it's really astonishing the number of art-related collections we have. We collect Mallet Dean, who was a local wood engraver. Not because he was a wood engraver, but because the wood engravings were mostly in books. So what can you do? He illustrated for the Allen Press, the Grabhorn Press, uh, and you can't have his work and you can't have his books and not have his art, right? So we have Mallet Dean. Uh, we have uh, some original drawings of Michelle Fourgeois. What's she doing in San Francisco? Well, she illustrated a number of books for the Allen Press. goes on and on and on again, uh, and on and on. So many of these artists are related one way or another to books, or to book form. And at least I try and stem the tide so far, that far, so we collect art that's related to the book. And it's a very successful course. I have more students come in on that one than, than any other. I get a, I stuff 150 students in my, in my rare book room at a time. I don't care. They're there, aren't they? They get there. They know where it is. They look around. They like the place how many of them come back. It's not really what you teach them, but that you get them in the rare book room to do the teaching. That seems to be the important element. Um, I teach uh, for the um, World English Center, which might be surprising. We have a lot of foreign students who are learning English as a second language. They love me because I can talk very slowly and very distinctly, and I can vary my speed to their needs. And nearly all of them can understand. So I am a very popular lecturer, and I get several classes a year up from the World English Center. One of the things I don't like as well about that is the largest class um, is too large to come in the rare book room, so I go in a small amphitheater, then I have to schlep my examples. I always show what I'm talking about, and schlep all these things over. That amounts to, you know, what, is, what can you put in a box? $75,000 worth of books? That gives one pause from time to time. So uh, I don't really like doing that, but to reach that many students, Marcus is willing, and uh, they love it. They like the course very, very much. Uh, it's always fascinating to show people, uh, foreigners, that there are things, at least things in America, uh, older than than uh, 1850 San Francisco firehouses. But they really have old books. It really impresses them. You'd be surprised. Stop it. Just stop it. And I also work on the on the, uh, the, the the notion that an undergraduate can't seriously expect to, to have a claim to a liberal education and not know something about the history of the book. That's that's the, um, the point from which I work. And if I could teach a any student something about the history of the book, I feel that I'm doing as well as I can for the university. 
we're all, we have undergraduate programs, there's very little need for research materials as far as the students go. It's simply a fact of life. Fortunately, we're not a, uh, a big university system where every penny is watched, where the, my money comes from the general, general fund. My money being uh, separately supplied in a separate fund is not subject to the university. They probably, I would think, they might not even have a rare book room if they hadn't been for Bob Monaghan, and it had not been for the private funds that we get from the Frank C. Drum Fund. Because they have, they're much more interested in staying alive. They're doing all right. We just completed a $27 million endowment program, which is not a lot for some colleges, but it's a lot of money for us. So we're not going broke, but uh, the university doesn't understand the, the absolute relationship fairly independently along independent lines as far as the curriculum goes. We, we really wouldn't have to have much in a rare book room. Well, we don't let that stop us. Um, and the administration has come around to the point that you have research collections of various kinds. Robert Graves, Richard Legallian, Eric Hill have major uh, primary research materials uh, in them. Those attract scholars. Those attract major donors. Those attract money, those are of interest to people that the university is interested in. And that is the point that they like about the rare book. Not that it can provide much for the students, because other than what I can teach in the history of the book, I don't feel that the, the rare book can do that much. But I do want to do that much. But the, for the university, it's a wonderful showpiece. And they very much understand what acknowledgments and fund speeches are based on your collections are, and that sort of thing. And they love bringing people to see these things. They love, they love, they love the physical area of the rare book room, and they love the publicity value that it has externally for the, for the university of San Francisco. And that's what makes good sense. But it's taken them time. But we, do, we simply don't sit around and talk about wealth now. What's going to be relevant to the students? Because their needs are very modest in an undergraduate school. Other than, I think, as I say, knowing something of the history of the book. That I'm thrilled to do. Uh, the Gleason Library Associates, I'm sure any of you who are rare book librarians have to work with your local friends group. Ours is called the Gleason Library Associates, and as you know, it was formed 25 years ago, which makes it quite an old West Coast friends group. Again, it was Father Monahan who founded it, and we have about 500 uh, members in that friends group. Uh, curiously, it, doesn't ha it never did have very high dues. The notion of it wasn't really to gain major, uh, to generate major funds for the rare book room or even for the library in general. They've never come up with more than $2,000 a year as a gift. When I spend, when I get forty thousand dollars from the drum fund, it's not a major. It's a very pleasant addition, but it's not a major addition. Nearly all of the money that the, that the Gleason Library Associates take in, they spend on themselves, which is very interesting. It's an interesting concept, and it seems to me it is viable. If you have, if your collection can support not having that kind of money, the Bancroft Library and Stanford get major amounts of money from their friends group because of the high categories they have 
a larger number. And that money is important to them. It's even more important to us, if you will, if you take the long view. We have time on our side. And certainly one of my favorite mottos is that a librarian can afford to be patient. In the long view, you have people who just want to be members, who just want to, who like the library, uh, who like to come to Sunday meetings and have champagne afterwards. But among that group, you also have very important collectors, a lot of people with money. And in time, they remember, whether it's with a request or with a gift of a book or books, it comes back to us in kind rather than in money. And I think uh, a friends group can take one tack or another. Sometimes it works both. But I think it's perfectly effective enough for us to work in the long range. Founded in 1855, is going to be around to reap some more rewards. I hope. Uh, I do a good number, a good, a good deal of work for the Goodison Library Associates. I, of course, am expected to attend all their Sunday afternoon meetings. There's only four of them. That's just four Sundays. We also have two weekend tours a year: a, a spring tour and a fall tour. Um, I am sometimes uh, expected to talk for the Goodison Library Associates. Conservation, there's no formal conservation program at USF, but our concerns are lively and money has been diverted for a wide range of conservation efforts. We have ultraviolet shielding, 
perchlorescent lights, all our manuscripts are in acid-free file folders and boxes, and we have a small but useful uh, binding budget for the most crippled of our holdings. As far as temperature and humidity are concerned, I've often said that if I were a rare book, I would like to live in San Francisco. Uh, the temperature and humidity are extremely equable, as you know, and it's simply not a major problem. Uh, one interesting thing that I'm at variance at with uh, most other practices is that we do not mark our books or manuscripts in any way. Uh, we have an acid-free slip with the call number and catalog that goes into the book, but of course, the guys, obviously, the, the rush jacket stays on. The book is not marked in any way. Um, of course, I think we're the envy of lots of larger libraries because they'd love to leave their books pristine too. But when you have a small staff and large usage, you really can't afford to do that. And I feel sorry for libraries that are compelled to mark. But I'm very, very pleased that I don't have to, and I'm very careful to maintain a, an absolute pristine state of anything that comes into the rare book room. Uh, and it does have to do with our the one-to-one -one relationship that I can have with users. I'm almost through. Security. The room has a good uh, ultrasonic alarm system. There are door contact alarms uh, on every appropriate door. There, and there's a smoke detection system, all of which protect the room when I'm not there. But I have additional mechanical aids to help me, which are helpful since I'm a one-man show. The door to the rare book room stack is at the far end of the room. So I had a buzzer. Oh, I'm sorry. I, but I'm... It, if I am organizing the collection or shelving or whatever in the stacks, I cannot hear anyone come into the, into the room. I can't hear the door open or shut. So I had a buzzer attached to the front door, which buzzes only in the stacks. The person entering cannot hear the buzzer. So if I am in the stacks, I can be in the main room again within the time it takes the visitor to walk about five feet, feet and see anyone at all. I, I'm there always automatically, instantly in the room because they can't walk any faster than that, really. So I'm not ever surprised by visitors, as I was occasionally, uh, never unpleasantly. But uh, people would have to walk to the end of the room and peek around the stack door and say, anybody there? It's not always good. I often could not hear the telephone either. And by the time I realized the phone was ringing uh, many times and was rushing toward it, I, was, I missed the phone. My phone bell now also rings in the stacks, and I can get to the, four, to the phone before it rings. Naturally, I'm annoyed with those who give up on free. There's also a switch on my phone which transfers my calls to the Universal Librarian Secretary when I'm not in the room. And that's another question. At least if people are trying to get a hold of me when I'm away, messages can be left with the Universal Secretary, the Universal Librarian. One of the things I enjoy most about my job is the wonderful diversity of the collection. I go to work happily every day simply because of the knowledge that what happens will be different from the day before. One question that never ceases to amaze me when someone finds out or realizes that I work alone in the rare book room is, don't you ever get lonely? How could I? Thank you.